the future for robots and humans on the red planet. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Perseverance rover is busy collecting samples on Mars, packing them in tiny tubes with plans to send them back to Earth. It's also discovering the history of Mars by exploring the planet's geology as it traverses an ancient lake looking for signs of life. We'll talk with one astrobiologist about the mission so far and what's ahead for Percy on the Red Planet. Then, from nuclear rockets to inflatable habitats, technology for human missions to Mars is rapidly developing. How close are we to astronaut missions to the Red Planet? We'll explore the challenges and developments that are getting us ever closer to boots on the ground. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. NASA's Perseverance rover wrapped up a major mission milestone, collecting 10 sample tubes filled with Martian dirt, rocks, and air. A future mission will collect these samples and return them back to Earth for further analysis and possibly uncovering ancient evidence of life. But the rover's mission is far from over. Here to bring us up to speed on Percy's time on Mars is Amy Williams. She's an astrobiologist at the University of Florida and scientist on the mission. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Brennan. It's so much fun to come back on here every time. Well, that's because there's so much going on uh, on the Red Planet. Uh, let's let's talk about Percy. Perseverance is doing some great work and finished up a, a round of caching. Um, what what has Percy been up to since the last time we talked? Oh, probably too many things. Um, so we have completed the Delta Front campaign, which was looking at the front of the Jezero Delta. And uh, when we say there's a campaign, that means that we are characterizing the geologic environment and then collecting samples for Mars sample return. And let's talk about that campaign and collecting those samples because it wrapped up a, a pretty big milestone, right? Yeah. So one of the big things that Percy is doing is collecting samples for the Mars sample return architecture. And so this is meant to be samples that we collect and then put into a depot or a cache. Those are the two terms we've been kind of using interchangeably. And the intent would be that uh, future missions between NASA and ESA will go to collect those samples and bring them back to Earth. And so this will be the first time that we ever return samples from Mars, from a place where we know the geologic environment and the character of the rocks. And then we can finally ground truth all of the, the questions that we've had um, from all of our rover missions, things that we've never been able to return a sample, but we're, you know, it would be really neat to say, you know, what other analyses could really help us to close out this question? And now we'll have that opportunity. So mm -hmm. with the, the cache, um, this first cache is um, smaller than the second one will be. Um, so we, we dropped 10 tubes that have a variety of different samples in them um, or witness tubes, which are meant to be sort of like blanks. And the intent is that you'll have this one cache in the Jezero crater floor at a place that we named Three Forks. Um, and then the second cache will be once we've collected all of the samples that Percy is able to collect and we will set those down. And so then the decision can be made whether we want to Mars sample return to collect from the first or the second cache. You mentioned witness tubes, and I know we talked about this before, but it's 
pretty fascinating. What is actually in these witness tubes that have been dropped as a part of this uh, this this first cache? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so the answer is nothing, or preferably nothing. Witness tubes and blanks are are sort of a, a foundation of science, right? You need to know if the thing you detect in a sample is actually present in your your sampling structure, right? And so those are why we run blanks to make sure that so, a a the background is clean. So mm-hmm. what we've done is we actually sealed one of these tubes. So they're the same as all the tubes in the sample caching system on Percy. And we sealed one um, before we left Earth. And so that was meant to be one kind of blank where you see like what we are actually leaving uh, from Earth with. And then we have a couple of other tubes that we were sealing on Mars. And so the intent with that is to seal something in the environment where you are collecting these samples so that you have a good comparison. What was in the atmosphere? What, you know, is there a potential for uh, volatiles of some kind from the rover to get on the samples? They would also be in the witness tube. And so it's basically a check and balance in what we see in the samples. This is, this is the point of it for us to say, okay, that molecule we found in the sample, but it was also present in the witness tube. So um, does that mean that it is not related to the sample? Did it come from the rover? Did it come from something else, um, windblown, whatever on Mars? So that those are the kinds of questions that we can address. And it makes for a really rigorous um, you know, set of samples because we can, we can really see what was in the background versus what's truly in the sample. So a tube full of nothing may be able to tell you everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's absolutely right. It's it's one of those big checks that we we need to do as scientists. Well, I'm so excited for that to to actually get back to scientists like like yourself to to look into it. One of the things that I was reading about, um, you know, this the sample collection and and the places that Percy's going is that ingenuity has been tagging along, and I think it's on like what its fortieth plus flight on the surface of plus, Mars. Yeah, I mean how impressive is that and how has how has ingenuity been helping with with kind of the um the scouting of places to go and also with with helping the the sample collection because when when you talk to nasa engineers like listen they really temp their tempered our expectation it might not work we've never done this before and now we're looking at dozens of flights by this thing you know just how impressive is it and how helpful has ingenuity been oh i i think it's really neat to see what this technology demonstration that was meant to perform five flights and has now done more than 40 has has been able to to show us and um, although it's it's not doing too much on the science side right now um, what it has done what I think is really important is that it's demonstrated that we can send uh, controlled powered flight vehicles to Mars we can have them do important work and and that's part actually of how when the Mars sample return architecture had to shift um, so that we are sending two heli- two of these kinds of helicopters um, to assist in collecting the sample cache and putting it into the vehicle that's going to launch them off of Mars. That's one of the really big things that I think Ingenuity has helped us to, to feel confident in is that we can send helicopters to help with this really important step. You know, right now, Mars sample return intends to use perseverance um, 
to deliver the the second cache to the to the vehicle that will launch the samples. But you know, it may be really useful to have a vehicle that is autonomous from the rover that can go and collect samples and bring them back to that that launch vehicle or if we need them to go to the first cache where Percy is no longer, you know, we're going to hopefully be far gone away doing something else at that point. We have these redundancies that can help us feel really confident that these missions will be a success. Um, so right. yeah, Ingenuity is, is certainly the little helicopter that could and has taught us so much about the new ways that we can explore Mars with now aerial craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting to think about having little little choppers picking up these samples in case it needs to for for the sample return. How I mean, how how far away are these two depots going to be? And then within the depots, how far away are the cache caches? Um, you Ooh, know, is cool our- question. Yeah, so the two depots will be pretty far apart um, on the order of. Uh, kilometers, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. And that that's a really rough estimate just based on what we, you know, where all we think we're going to be able to go with the, the remainder of the mission and collect samples. So we would probably depot closer to the end point of all of that as opposed to mm-hmm. coming back down into the crater. Nothing's been set in stone, of course. Um, but far enough away that if you didn't land really close to a cache, it would be a haul in order to get to the samples. Um, so those are far away from each other. And then one of the other things, you know, speaking with people, they said, oh, I thought that Percy would just kind of like drop all the tubes on the ground in a pile and, and drive away, um, you know, sort of make like a, a cairn of, of sample tubes. But um, in actuality, oh, we have so carefully scouted out the locations where we were going to drop these samples. And so it's been sort of this like little dance or ballet that Percy's been doing dropping the samples in very specific locations that we've already checked that there are no little rocks that could cause, uh, you know, any issues with picking up the samples, um, drop the sample back away, take a picture to make sure it's on the ground and then go to our next, you know, small depot site within that whole cache. Um, Mm. So the samples are spread out by several meters so that there's plenty of space to collect them. And I think that that's one of the, the things that I've learned, you know, not being an engineer, not being on that side of the mission, but watching this happen, that the the way people are so careful to ensure that we don't have, you know, there there aren't hiccups along the way, you know, 10 years or something, we go to try to bring these samples back. We're trying to be as careful as possible. And, and big shout out to the engineers for designing all of that and making sure it, it, it really works out. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you're, you have to find multiple landing sites, right? Each of these one little things would have to be just like you're finding a landing site for Mars, right? You don't want to make sure there's nothing in the way, it's clear paths. That's fascinating, all, all the work that goes into that. Um, yeah, yeah. It's more than I realized would go into it yeah. when I first joined the mission. It's really impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, engineering aside, uh, let's talk a little bit about science. You mentioned that that Percy is is heading to a new location. Where's Perseverance going and why are you so excited for this this new area of discovery? I think anyone who's heard our conversations knows I'm excited about Mars no matter where it is and what we're doing. Um, So what's really exciting right now with Percy is, you know, we've been exploring the crater floor. Then we went to the front of the delta and and went, you know, several meters up onto the delta to collect samples for this first cache. But now what we're doing, you know, we drop the samples on the crater floor. We're going to drive up past places we've actually seen before from the, the delta front 
But then we're going to finally go beyond that to the what we call the Delta Top campaign. And so this is going to be sort of finishing up what we see in this delta structure, this this geologic structure that only forms when a river flows into a lake and deposits sediments. Um, so I feel like as a geologist, we're going to see sort of the continuation of the story of all of these sedimentary rocks, these layers that have formed at the front of the delta. And we've really only seen like the front and the cross section of them. Now we're going to be able to go up on top and see units that we have not been able to explore yet within the delta. So we'll do the Delta Top campaign. And then right before we leave the crater, there's actually this, this region we call the marginal carbonates. So it's just what it sounds like. It's along the margin of the crater between the delta and the crater rim. And it's made up of a type of uh, rock called carbonate. And so that's going to be a very different environment from what we've explored previously. Um, so there's a lot of really new, exciting uncharted territory that we're, we're heading into. And as always, I'm excited to see what Mars will throw at us. Mm -hmm. What's the timeline for it to get to the, the crater top? When are we talking? Because I need to schedule you to come back on the show and tell us everything <laughs> that we found out about it. <laughs> um, so, you know, we are making good progress. I think that we want to um, get a lot of these samples by about one and a half uh, Mars years. Um, so that's going to be three Earth years. So we're, we're moving at a good clip, and I would say moving as expeditiously as we can. But um, it's hard to assign timelines just because, like I said, it's fun to see what Mars throws at us. But sometimes what Mars throws at us can, can slow us down, make us go around obstacles. And um, so I would say that we're moving at a really good clip. There's going to be really neat stuff coming up in the, the relatively near future. So just keep your ears open. That was Amy Williams. She's an astrobiologist at the University of Florida and a scientist on the mission. Coming up, a conversation on the efforts to send astronauts to the red planet. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. Over the past few weeks on this show, we've talked about nuclear rockets and inflatable habitats, all technologies for human missions to Mars. While this technology is rapidly developing, how close are we really to astronaut missions on the Red Planet? Well, the organization Explore Mars hopes humans will reach the surface by the end of the 2030s. Here to talk about the challenges of a human to Mars missions and the efforts to get us there is Chris Carberry. He's the CEO of Explore Mars. Chris, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me on. So, Chris, the goal of Explore Mars is to, you know, bring leaders together and get humans to the surface of Mars by the late 2030s. Um, are we close to that? Is, is that still the case? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. The official policy right now is no later than 2040. We would like to get there sooner. And so on one side, we are certainly we are certainly capable of getting humans to Mars in the 2030s. On the other side, though, we still need a lot more clarity on how we're going to do it. We have all this wonderful architecture that we've had, never had before. Now, obviously, Artemis One flew recently. 
Perhaps Starship will fly soon. We have all these other systems coming into play. And so we have never been in a position where, you know, we've been so prepared to go back, you know, leave low Earth orbit, go back to the moon Mm -hmm. and hopefully get to Mars by the mid-2030s, frankly. But we need to find a way to get a little more clarity on how, first off, you know, when we go back to the moon, how are we going to use that to enable going to Mars and not become an obstacle to it? And so I think there's been a lot of advancements in the last few years, but there still remains, at least publicly, uh, a lot of questions to be answered on how we're going to do this and what, you know, really what the timeline for all these things are. You say get to the moon and make it not become an obstacle. What is what is the fear when it comes to our looking towards the moon at a long-term sustained presence rather than further along to something like Mars? Well, once we're back to the moon, and I'm certainly in favor of going to the moon, you know, it could very well become an obstacle. We could become stuck literally on the moon as we're, you know, might take longer to get there. And, you know, hard to predict that. But once there, we might not be as motivated to take the next step or we might not be learning lessons on the surface of the moon. Now, there's a lot of talk within NASA, within policy circles, who also are, are sympathetic to that. They are work trying to prevent it from becoming a moon-only program. But this needs to be constantly pushed to make sure as mission architectures are being built for the moon, they are thinking about Mars at the same time. There's not complete overlap, but there is a lot of overlap. And we could very well create a system that was exclusively for the moon, had very little value for Mars. And then, you know, once we get to the moon, we start thinking, all right, now let's figure out how we're going to go, go to, the, uh, to Mars in the next 20 years. We don't want that to happen. We want it to be able to be part of the same campaign of missions that go to the moon, Mars, and, and hopefully beyond over time. I mean, we want to build up this infrastructure and have as much uh, reusability between missions as possible. You know, well, obviously the Mars, Mars has an atmosphere, the moon doesn't. So, you know, there are different systems, but there are still, even with entry, descent, and landing on, on Mars, there are systems, you know, particularly in the final descent phase, which there are overlaps, but also with spacesuit designs and, you know, habitats, there are differences, but a lot, there's still a lot of overlap between the two, as well as perhaps use utilization of ISRU as well. In situ resource utilization, right? Yes. That would, that would, yeah. <laughs> Using the stuff that, that you've got. Yeah, basically living off the land. You know, Mars should be easier. The water would be, uh, you know, we think would be a lot easier to access based on all the robotic landers we've sent there. It should be at least the water ice should be fairly easy to access. access. I mean, compared to the moon, Mm -hmm. whereas there's Mm -hmm. water on the moon, but it's, you know, in polar regions and craters that have not been exposed to the sun in billions of years. So extreme locations, and even I've heard the ice under, you know, after that long in those extreme temperatures are going to be like steel as well. Let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned the Artemis One mission. You know, these, these big programs, these expensive programs require public buy-in, right? And as someone who's trying to get public buy-in for a mission to Mars, is there a sense of optimism after seeing the reaction to Artemis 1? I mean, this was an uncrewed mission, but there was a lot of excitement and a lot of eyes watching this. 
Does that give you a little bit of hope for for? Of course, I, I was. I was very excited by. Yeah, I was very excited by that to show that there was just so much excitement around the country, and to be clear, and the world, be clear. You know, well, people still bring up, oh, it's so expensive, etc. Generally, there is solid there and there has been for years solid support and this is bipartisan support as well for sending humans to mars and and we can't let that we can't ignore that because there are very few things in this country where there is solid bipartisan support you can count them probably on one or two fingers at the moment mm-hmm. and so and when it comes down to budgetary issues well it's yeah it's not inexpensive but people don't understand People generally don't understand budgetary, you know, what NASA really costs, you know, compared to the rest of the federal budget. You often hear people kind of thinking it's like comparable to the military or even entitlement programs, which obviously it is a drop within a drop within a drop of the the budget for that. You know, NASA still accounts for less than half of 1% or maybe it's around half right now, regardless. It's tiny percentage of the budget. Plus, there's all this private investment right now that helps magnify that as well. So I think, you know, dollar for dollar, you're not going to find a program that can have such as big an impact that has such broad public and bipartisan support. And we should latch on to that. This is one of these areas, you know, maybe it can help also help heal the country, you know, show that we do agree on with each other on certain things. We agree that we should, you know, start, you know, continue to explore space and send people back to the moon and on to Mars. But do you also run into a, a challenge with the time frame? I mean, I'm thinking that a Mars mission, if, if you announce a program to Mars, it is not going to happen within one presidential administration, right? I mean, we, we've seen this issue before. Uh, and look, this is, it's, always, it's always been a challenge. But even if you look at the general policy, and it's not necessarily, and I'm not saying the policies move forward as quickly as we would like. It's been mm-hmm. sometimes rather <laughs> lethargic, you know, sometimes, you know, but, you know, over the last couple presidencies, and even, even you know, as far back as George W. Bush, you know, and into Obama, then during the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration, there has actually been a general, you know, consistency of going back to the moon and on to Mars. It's gotten more focused. And so we have able, particularly as things developed, you know, when, you know, af- after things were shaken up and the SLS was created and some other systems, that focus has remained moon-Mars focus. And that's been over multiple administrations. And we we're worried, of course, as the new administration came in, that things might change. And yeah, there are subtle things that change, but the overall focus remain the same. Now, that doesn't mean, once again, things are moving as aggressively as we would like. I think we're moving too cautiously. We need to be, of course, take precautions. We can't waste people's lives. But I think overall, based on the, the overwhelming support there is, I think we could move more aggressively. And I think sometimes, you know, I think Congress would actually fund a more aggressive program if they were presented with that program. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't think, even if they don't think that we can absolutely make it to Mars by the mid-2030s, I think there is value in setting that goal. If we make it, great. But otherwise, you know, we're certainly going to get there sooner 
than we otherwise would have if we set that goal. And if it slips from 2035 to 2037, that's great. Then rather than saying 2039, and then it probably will slip into the 2040s. I think mm-hmm. you, know, you mentioned that time frame. It's not just a political one, although it's a big part of it, but it's also building public excitement. You know, I think we need to make sure, and this is why going to the moon is also important from a, you know, from my perspective, you know, running the Mars organization, in addition to all the other great reasons to go to the moon, you know, is make sure there are always milestones, big milestones people see. So we're not like waiting, you know, a really long period of time before anything happens. But mm-hmm. once again, if we put Mars always on that as that horizon goal, it never seems to get closer than the horizon goal, people begin to lose faith that we're ever going to do it. You're saying we should move faster um, and that Congress would support something like that, funding a faster program? I, know, I can't guarantee that they would fund it. Once again, we have a new Congress as well. So it's hard to gear what the new Congress is actually going mm-hmm. to do. But based on the last several years of, you know, Congress's willingness to increase NASA's budget and some things I've heard, you know, mostly pre-COVID, but, you know, I, I don't think it's changed a lot. Um, you know, you know, Congress has been looking for, you know, to see an ambitious program. And to NASA's credit, they've, you know, they've made a lot of progress. There's more and more coming out, but I still think more needs to be, more clarity needs to be shown, you know, show how, mm-hmm. you know, how we're actually going to do it and what the obst- real obstacles are. I mean, I certainly, running an organization like Explore Mars, and I work with a lot of people, the mission architecture people at NASA and industry, I certainly have seen, um, I would assume, most of the major plans to get there. And there are some very interesting plans, but it's you know hard to say whether these are the official plans or not. Right. So I, I think I think I think more clarity needs to be um, released by all players and and how and how you know and the mixture between you know as we're moving forward, you know on you know bringing in these new partnerships as well. Mm-hmm. And I don't even mean just you know the whole thing between you know with launch the launch industry with all the competition there that's developed but also incorporating all these different players. And this is like a big area of discussion at the Humans to Mars coming up, Humans to Mars Summit coming up in May, you know, looking at all the innovations that we need to go to Mars to sustainably go. You know, we need to eat, we need to breathe, we need medicine, we need artificial intelligence, we need, well, it goes on and on and on, environmental systems. And so by looking at these problems through the Mars lens, what sort of innovations can you develop, can you create that could benefit Earth, but also what sort of industries have not traditionally been part of the space industry? There are a lot of companies out there doing things highly relevant. Chris Carberry is the CEO of Explore Mars. The organization's Humans to Mars Summit is coming up in May that hopes to answer a lot of those questions. Uh, Chris Carberry, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. That was Chris Carberry, CEO of Explore Mars. The organization is hosting the 2023 Humans to Mars Summit this May at the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. 
Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Good to have you back, LaToya. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.